We'll go ahead and have a seat. Kids, kindergarten through fifth grade, you can make your way to the, to the back. Your teachers are waiting back there. In just a moment, we're going to read from God's Word. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are a handful in the back there. Larry has them in his hand. Please put your hand in the air. It would be great for you to see the words that I'm about to read in front of you. We're going to bear down in just a couple of verses this morning as we get going in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 is where we'll be this morning. Don't be shy. If you need a copy of God's Word, Larry has a few. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 this morning. It's right at the beginning of your Bible. These are the opening words of the pages of Scripture. These words inspired by the Holy Spirit. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Beginnings are nice, and maybe you had that thought this week as we moved from 2019 into 2020. A fresh new year, a new lease on life, a fresh new decade. We're ready to go, ready to tackle life and to live it to its fullest. And maybe you even made some resolutions. Maybe you're a person who makes resolutions. I I personally think resolutions are good. Some people don't like them, but I think that they are in fact good. There was a time in my life though where I didn't think resolutions were a good thing, Um, and maybe in my youth I didn't think so. I thought to myself oftentimes, shouldn't I be living in such a way that doesn't require me to make resolutions every year? Shouldn't I be moving in a direction uh, that is is God-honoring in all of my life? And in a sense, I wasn't wrong when I thought that, but in another very real sense, I was very arrogant. I was very arrogant. Well, I'm still prone to that, that arrogance, I think I've come to a better understanding. Because I think that resolutions in general say something about our creatureliness. It says something about the fact that we are created beings. That we were made, that we were formed out of the dust or the rib. You you and I are always changing. And when we make resolutions, it requires us to humbly say, I'm not doing things quite right. I'm not doing my marriage quite right. I'm not caring for my spouse quite right. I'm not parenting quite right. I'm not working quite right. I'm not stewarding my resources or my mind or my talents correctly. And so on and so forth. And so if you don't want to call those resolutions, it's fine. Maybe you want to call them goals or habits. Many of us have habits that we want to form, see formed in us, or goals that we set for a coming year. But I think we can learn from a pretty important guy in the history of Christianity. His name is Jonathan Edwards. Many of you know that name. Jonathan Edwards was a congregational pastor in the 18th century in Massachusetts. He was regarded as one of America's greatest, if not greatest, theologians. And between the year of 1722 and 1723, Edwards wrote out 70 life resolutions. At the top of his page, he wrote, Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions 
so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. Edward's first resolution then goes like this. Resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good, profit, and pleasure. In the whole of my duration, without any consideration of the time, whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence, resolve to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. Resolve to do this, whatever difficulties I meet with and how and how many and how great soever. <laughs> That's quite the resolution. My resolutions go something like this. I want to read 20 books this year. Not quite as inspiring as Edwards. But because we're prone to change as people, we tend to drift. So Edwards would read over each of these 70 resolutions at the beginning of every, every week and attempt to prevent himself from drifting. And herein lies the benefit of resolutions for us. A humble approaching of God, asking Him to use us in our lives, to make the most of our time, to make the most of our resources, to make the most of our our talent. And without that component, without humbly approaching God and asking Him to, to empower us, it would be utter foolishness to make resolutions. So what does this have to do with the first two verses in Scripture? God made a resolution in eternity past to create everything that exists. And now when we talk about God making resolutions, that looks a little bit different than us making resolutions. There was not a time in the past, if we could say that, where God didn't intend to create because God doesn't change. There was no time in the past where God didn't intend to create because He doesn't change. And it wasn't because God needed to improve that He created. He is infinite, eternal. But simply because He is God. When God resolves then to do something, nothing will prevent that thing from coming about. And nothing outside of Himself is needed to bring it about. God is the source of strength behind what He resolves. And he is the source of strength behind what we resolve also. And that's what we find here in these first two verses in Scripture. Genesis 1, 1, and 2. We find an introduction then to an all-powerful creator God. And so just to back up and get to 30,000 feet for a moment, we are going to spend the first six-ish months in Genesis chapter 1, through 11. Basically all the material before we meet Abraham. So we ask ourselves a question. I want to give you a little bit of an introduction. Why are we here? I'm going to give you three reasons why we're here. Three, I think. Yes, three. Three reasons why we're here in Genesis chapter 1 through 11. First, first of all, Genesis is very important to our understanding of the rest of Scripture. Everything that comes after this relies heavily upon what takes place in these first 11 chapters. The rest of the Bible is frequently pointing us back to the events in the garden 
and the events that take place right afterwards. In order to understand Paul in the New Testament, he's constantly making these arguments regarding the opening pages of Scripture. And in order to understand much of the significance of the life of Jesus, we must understand the opening pages of Scripture. And in order to understand the promises that God makes to us and the covenants that He enacts, we must understand the opening pages of Scripture. And in order to understand the trajectory of human history and God's redemptive plan, we must understand the opening pages of Scripture. I could go on, but you get the point. So that's the first reason. Genesis is very important to our understanding of the rest of Scripture. The second reason we're here is because we won't be able to avoid theologically complex or difficult topics. Some of these you may well know, and we'll work through them. God's divine character, the federal headship of Adam, the depravity of man, justification by faith, and go on and on and on. Similar to that, the, 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 the carrying us into important theological issues will also be carried into culturally incendiary topics as well. The origins of the universe, evolution, sex, sexuality, and gender, what it means to be human, marriage, etc., So we want to dive into these theologically important and culturally important issues. The third reason that we're here is because as your pastor, I want 2020 to be a year where you individually and where we as a church grow in our biblical literacy. Now this is always my goal. It's not like that changed, but helps that it's January, the beginning of January, and I can say it afresh. I want 2020 to be a year where you grow individually and we grow as a church in our biblical literacy. You may be here this morning and you haven't picked up your Bible outside of a Sunday morning in a long time. Or you may be plowing through the Bible reading plan already for 2020. The reason Buffalo City Church exists, you know it, the reason Buffalo City Church exists is so that we would be disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. But there is no way that that will happen if we don't get better, all of us, at reading, studying, interpreting, and implying the Bible. And like I said, this is always a goal when we start a sermon series, but this goal, coupled with the reality of the things that we're going to find here in Genesis chapter 1-11, through 11, as well as the theological and foundational application-heavy nature of this. These combinations of things will inevitably contribute to an expanding of our biblical literacy. And so my prayer is that we together as a church in 2020 would be together on this very thing. For some of you, that's a huge stretch, and you're going to have to make a sacrifice. Next time you open your phone to read another article about the the Packers or the Vikings, or next time you pull open your favorite mom blog on your tablet, next time you open up the newspaper to see what's going on in our city, think to yourself, what if I have devoted the next 10 minutes to the Bible instead of sports or diaper rash or the weather? Some of you need to take the next step. 
to be someone who isn't simply accumulating knowledge, but someone who is applying it and helping others understand and apply it as well. That's all on his side, but these are some goals that we have as we enter into Genesis chapter 1 through 11. And I hope that we can resolve all of this together in 2020. For some of you, this is going to make you feel uncomfortable. You've been allowed to exist on the fringes of churches, maybe Buffalo City Church, for a long time. And you're going to need to be challenged. Fair warning. But let's consider these first two verses together then. Think about those goals. Think about what we're working towards as we enter into 2020. But also think about these two verses. As we approach Genesis 1 through 11, I'm going to move between some smaller snippets of things and some larger chunks. This morning we're just taking two verses and next week we're taking on about 30. You've probably grown to accustomed on a Sunday morning to the approach where we consider a few points that the text makes and then draw some application. But again, every once in a while in Genesis, I'm going to move away from that model. I'm going to slow down in just a couple of verses to dive deep into just one or two. And that's what we're going to do this morning with these two verses. So again, I hope your Bible's in front of you because I want you to see these words. I know they might be familiar to you, but Genesis chapter 1, 1 and 2, these words we're going to dive into right now. I want to bear down on these. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, these are the first three words that we see here in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning. Consider with me the word the. It's a word that we go over pretty, pretty quickly. The definite article. The. But it communicates something really important to us. Most stories you read begin not with the beginning, but a beginning. Most stories you read begin with a beginning. Oftentimes, when you sit down to write a story, you start right in the middle of things. Someone has been born. Someone has been living for 50 years. A particular event has taken place, and now we're coming into and bearing down on the, a thing that we want to look into. If you read a piece of nonfiction about the Civil War, you might assume that all the characters and events are grounded in developments that occurred beforehand. If you watch Star Wars A New Hope, you recognize that, you, that there is some backstory. Luke is stuck on Tatooine for another harvest. C-3PO and R2-D2 have seen some combat. There's not much to tell, they say, but they do know of the rebellion. Ben Kenobi used to go by the name Obi-Wan. Luke's dad was a Jedi. You get the idea. There's backstory. This is a beginning. It's not the beginning. And that's what's unique about what we find here in verse 1 of Genesis. That little word, the. This is not just a story, it's the story. This is about to give us the origins of the universe. We don't want to neglect a direct article, the. And immediately Scripture combats pluralism. 
Pluralism is the idea that you have your beliefs and I have my beliefs and we're all cool with your truth and my truth. The Scripture immediately goes after that. That truth is contained personally and internally, not externally or objectively. But as Christians who read Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we must, because the Bible does this, we must say that there is only one true God the God of the Bible. You can't be a Christian and change thus to us. We must echo Jesus' words in John 14.6 when He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. He is not a way. He is not a truth. He is not a life. But He is the way, the truth, and the life. And Genesis 1.1 describes the beginning. Again, not a beginning. Truth is not relative. The Bible says it is fixed. It is fixed. Genesis 1.1 is an assault against pluralistic thinking. And this sets the tone for a God in His Word that does not feed us relativism, but gives us a steady diet of objective truth. And the beginning that is mentioned here is not a beginning of a story, but the beginning of the most important story. It's not your story. Your story is not the most important story. It's not my story. My story is not the most important story. It's not your family's story. It's not Buffalo City Church's story. It's not the story of the United States or Western civilization or political powers or great war heroes or humanity's most impressive achievements. We find out whose story this is. And in the very next word, we are introduced to the protagonist. We're introduced to the main character of this story. The next two words. God created. God created. This is God's story. This is God's story. And this is the case because of the verb created. God created. Without divine creative acts, Nothing or no one would be here to observe God's story. And so whose story could it ultimately be but God's? To talk endlessly about our story is to put ourselves in a place of primacy. But consider how we might fit into the story of God is to put Him in a place of primacy. And here's great help to us in 2020, and hopefully every day, we should not attempt to squeeze God into our story, but acknowledge that God has seen fit to write us into His story. And what I mean is this, your life has deep and meaningful purpose. Your life has deep and meaningful purpose. Whatever happens to you, whatever you choose to do, however your life unfolds, whatever, however you want to say it, God isn't surprised by it. And the sun will indeed rise tomorrow. God's creative order will continue on. I'm not saying hard things happen, so get over it. What I am saying, however, is this. God, in His kindness, is allowing you to exist in a magnificent story that He is telling about Himself. God, in His kindness, is allowing you to exist in a magnificent story that he is telling about his, uh, himself. And take solace in the fact that his purposes do not change regardless of what happens in your life. 
the understanding that this is God's story. That He is the one who created and He is the one who who sustains. This should dramatically impact how we see the world around us. It gives us ammunition to fight the war against a life of nearsightedness and a life that sees God as supreme. Would you rather listen to one person play the kazoo badly or a world-renowned orchestra? When we talk about our story, we squawk into a kazoo and claim that it's equal to the beautiful music composed and directed by a masterful musician. Don't, don't be deceived either, friends. Some corners of Christianity, maybe even an unfortunate majority, claim that the Bible is about you. But it is absolutely not. That idea is dispelled in the first five words of your Bible. In the beginning, God created. The Bible is God's story. It begins in the beginning with a creative God creating. In most ancient societies had origin stories about how everything that came into existence. But all of these stories take what man is and overlays it onto God or the gods. The Bible, however, starts in a place where we find God acting according to a character that we simply do not share. The ability to create something out of literally nothing. And quickly, there is a distinction made between creator and creature. God is the creator. And everything else, without exception, is his creation. Everything, therefore, belongs to him. And when we make the story then about us, what we do is essentially what many ancient societies did. We make God into our image and say that he is accountable to us rather than the other way around. We'll explore more of that when we think about the creation of man. But we need to look now at the next five words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What was it that God created? He created the heavens and the earth. And we get a little bit of extra information here. This is what verse 2 does for us. God's first act in his story is to create. And we quickly learn what it is that he creates. Heavens earth. And as we see next week, when we look at verses 3 through 31, we'll see everything that he in fact created and everything that is contained within creation. And verse 2 tells us that the earth is without form and void. And that means that the earth was there, a terrestrial sphere, an empty ball, and God would fill it with beauty to display who He is. And here stood God's canvas, a place for creation, God's unparalleled creativity to be put on display, without form or void, a blank piece of paper, a blank canvas, a lump of unformed clay. Verse 2 tells us that a, and darkness was over the face of the deep, This is really important language. This is really important language. It indicates right away something very important for those who would have been reading this in ancient Israel. Specifically in a community led by Moses who 
penned these words. The words deep and waters here are chosen very intentionally. For ancient Israel, we see this picked up in the New Testament. Water or the sea or the deep represents judgment and salvation. Israel, we look at the book of Exodus, Israel is delivered from the pursuing army of Pharaoh and the Red Sea opens up and they're allowed to pass through it. God delivers His people through the waters of the Red Sea and exacted judgment on the Egyptians with that same water. Later in our time in Genesis 1-11, through we'll explore Noah and how God brings about judgment by flooding the whole earth. But through the obedience of Noah, he and his family are delivered through the deep. When a storm pops up in the New Testament, while Jesus and his disciples are aboard their boat, Jesus delivers them by commanding the water, commanding the sea to be still. Jesus walks on the water. He walks on the sea. He is the Lord of the water because he made it. In February, we get to celebrate some baptisms, which I'm excited about. And our understanding of baptism as a church finds its grounding in this very concept. The water represents judgment. And so, when we are baptized, we are showing that we have walked through judgment unscathed. Not because of something that we have done, but because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. Jesus bears the judgment for our sins and comes up out of the grave. And so we go down into a watery grave, but we don't get held there. When we come up out of that judgment, we now walk in the light of the reality that Jesus made a way for us. So this language is important. Darkness over the face of the deep. Spirit of God hovering over the face of of the waters. Paul writes in Romans 6, 4, We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul didn't pick that metaphor out of the sky. This has real significance. And it's first, the first place it's mentioned is here in Genesis chapter 1. Because Jesus walked through the waters of judgment, for us, we will come up out of the grave to live an everlasting life in the presence of our Creator God. So this all sets the stage. These first two verses, God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. At the end of verse 2, we see God poised to fill up creation. Kenneth Matthews puts it like this, God was sovereignly superintending the condition of the earth and preparing the way for His creative word. This is what Genesis chapter 1 verses 1 through 2 does. It makes it possible for verses 3 through 31. So as we near the end of our time and as we move towards the Lord's table, we must realize then, we don't have time to dive into all of these things, but we must realize that there isn't anything that is unaffected by these opening words of Scripture. Let me give you a few thoughts to take away here this morning. Just three things that these verses can help us with 
this upcoming week. The first thing is this. Use these verses to fight your practical atheism. Use these words to fight your practical atheism. And you might say, I'm not an atheist. Let me tell you what I mean by this. Many of us who call ourselves Christians think very little about God throughout our week. It's an unfortunate reality, but we refer to ourselves as Christians, but, but we think very little about God. Our Christianity is in fact about our story and how God fits into it and can give us our best life. Rather than what Genesis 1, 1 and 2 tell us, rather than a recognition that we are caught up and woven into God's story. When we think about our story and our story exclusively and how God fits into our story, the result is practical atheism. We say, of course I believe in God, that he created everyone and everything, but what evidence do our, does our life give of this belief? When we truly believe that God created everyone and everything. It reshapes how we think about the world. It no longer is about us. And when it is no longer about us, we can truly use our lives to indicate that we were created to glorify our created God. So consider this week how you respond to difficulty or anything that comes up in your life. Consider How you respond. Does your response indicate that you believe that you are supreme or in control? Or does it indicate that the world should bend to you and to your desires? Or do your responses to difficulty indicate that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? Do your responses indicate that there is a God who created everyone and everything and yet still knows every hair on your head? Practical atheism stems from the notion that God is powerless. He's too busy. He's uncaring or he's unkind. But none of these are true. If they were, we could not expect that, God, that we would even exist or that God would care to communicate anything about himself through his word. But we do exist, good news, and God has given us his word. So first thing this morning, use these verses to fight your practical atheism. Second thing is this. Use these verses to reflect not only on the beginning, in the beginning, but on the end also. I have a friend who frequently says it's easy to begin something. It's difficult to end. All those resolutions that maybe you've made, many of us grow discouraged by the time we hit February because we've given up on most of them. It's true for us, but it's not true for God. God finishes what he starts in our lives. Paul tells the Philippians in Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. If God has saved us, delivered us through the waters of judgment based on the work of Jesus Christ, he will without question securely bring us to the end of our lives grounded firmly in Christ Jesus. And God finishes what he starts 
not only in us personally, but in creation as well. In Revelation 21.1, the Apostle John writes, Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and the sea was no more. That's an interesting phrase at the end there. The sea was no more. And the sea was no more because Jesus had passed through the waters of the judgment on behalf of those who will inhabit new creation. That's you and me if we are in Christ. God does not change. And so the beginning, in the beginning, God brought about what He brings about implies the ending that God intends. A perfect ending where His redemptive purposes are fully realized. Final thing then this morning. Use these verses to springboard you into a year where God's Word is your anchor and where your resolutions are grounded in Him. You may need to rewrite those resolutions this week. Don't just resolve to do better or get more done. Resolve that you will humbly call upon the God who created everyone and everything in the beginning. Rely on His grace to enable you to become more like Christ. And friends, Buffalo City Church, let's plunge ourselves into His Word this year. Let's see clearly that He's weaving us into His story. Friends, if you don't take anything else away this morning, take this away. God has a story that He is telling. And we, you and me, Buffalo City Church, we have a part to play. We're not mercenaries. We're not off doing our own thing. But we are in fact woven into what He is doing here in Jamestown, North Dakota. What would God do in our midst this year? Not to make much of us, but to, but to make much of Him. What would God do in our midst? That we would look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 and marvel at this. Nothing. And then a word. And something. We don't, we don't wonder. We don't wonder enough at the reality of these verses. A God who existed in an eternity past has created everyone and everything. Let's wonder at this together. Let's marvel together at His creative work and let's call others also to marvel at His creative work.